Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. James Montague, I'm a journalist and author of 1312 Among the Ultras. James, thank you very much for joining us for this episode of Ramble Meets. Great to have you here. It's a pleasure to be back in the in the box. Yeah, you're you're a regular visit, a semi regular visit here, really, aren't you? Well, three, but I mean, it's it's not. I like it, you know. So uh... give you a hat trick ball then if it's just there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're here to talk about your new book, uh, Thirteen Twelve, Among the Ultras, and we will come onto that, of course. That's the main reason we're here. But for those who are listening who aren't hugely aware of your work, there can't be many of them out there, but there are a few. Describe to us if you wouldn't mind exactly what you do. Uh, well, I'm, I, I guess I write about kind of obscure football around the world um, and the culture, politics and, um, you know, the, the interesting human stories that come out of that. So, I mean, I don't actually write about kind of football mainly yeah. or or much about English football. I never really cover English football and I've, I've lived abroad for a few years. So um, I've written a number of books. Um, some people might have seen my journalism in New York Times or more recently, The Bleacher Report. Mm-hmm. Where I've, I've started making a few films for them. Uh, but, the, you know, the thread amongst all of them are just kind of untold underdog stories somehow tangentially connected to football. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and yeah, it's been it's been quite good fun, and so it's kind of led me to this my fourth book, one three one two, among mm. the ultras, and uh, where I've decided I, I wanted to tell the stories of of this kind of very secretive and unknown subculture, uh, which we see almost every day on every football match we watch, every mm. Champions League match, every Europa League match, every Italian football match, everything we see ultras are there. You see the pyro, you see the uh, choreographies, everything, and mm. yet it's such a secretive thing that no one really knows anything about it, which also means that they're kind of othered as dangerous hooligans and, Mm. and, uh, you know, caricatured in a certain way. And so I wanted to get, you know, deep into the scene and, and try and tell some, a bit more of a nuanced story about how they've grown into something, which is pretty much one of the biggest youth cultures in the world today. Yeah, and this is a worldwide tale as well, because clearly you take in, in the book, you take in countries in South America, Europe, the New World, as you call it, out the Far East, that kind of stuff. Just that, just because I'm personally quite interested, how many countries have you been to covering um, football in this way? It w- 
it was about, I counted it the other day because my publisher asked me to. Yeah. And I think it was about 90. Okay. Uh, but that includes... Disputed territories. Disputed like. territories yeah, okay. like Western Sahara, Kosovo, mm. uh, West Bank, Palestinian territories. Yeah. Uh, Transnistria, yeah. which is a little sliver of uh, unrecognised independent country that's still a little bit like the Soviet Union, but between Ukraine and Moldova. Mm. So there's a few of those. Uh, but yeah, around around 90. Yeah. So you're walking the walk as well as uh, talking the talk as well. well yeah, I mean, you've yeah. got... I mean, You've got to be out there. You've got to be out there. I mean, I love. I mean, I love traveling. Um, I live in the Balkans and I've lived in Eastern Europe for the past few years. And you know, I, we were talking about it earlier. I mean, I, I, you know, I read George Orwell's um, Homage to Catalonia when I was when I was about eighteen, and it was a revolutionary moment, really, because you just you thought if you're going to do something like this, if you're going to go out and 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 you know want to be a journalist or a writer or try, try tell stories about something that's happening in the world. You've got to, you've got to be there, and he was there with a gun, you know, shooting at fascists, and mm. he takes a bullet in the neck, which probably take probably more than likely is one of the reasons why he dies at such a young age. Mm. And you think, well, I mean, that's a real that's a sacrifice for your art. And uh, I mean, I haven't been shot yet, thankfully. No. So I, might, I might quit whilst I'm ahead. I but, think it'll be safe in here, mate. Yeah, <laughs> looks like it, doesn't it? Oh, it looks like one of those um, magicians' rooms where they put, you know, when they put the woman in, when they stick the swords in. Yeah. So maybe there's some swords will come down. Like it's I've got a few swords under the table. It depends go. how this goes. Um, so you mentioned a second ago that, you know, this, this idea of ultra culture that we witness, maybe even sometimes we don't even know we're witnessing it when we watch football, either in person or on TV. But what to you then is the difference between a football fan, a passionate football fan and an ultra? It's, I mean, it's, it's an organizational structure, basically. I mean, mm. ultra is a, ultra means to go beyond in Italian and, and, and originally right, okay. in, in Latin. And that's what, and that's where it, it, it kind of comes from. And it, the scene emerges from Italy in the late 1960s. And it's kind of a reflection of the political turmoil that's taking place in Italy at the time. Um, 68 onwards, you know, there's, um, huge protests, far left and far right protests in the town and city squares of Italy. And um, it presages basically the, the year of, years of lead, which is a period of Italian history I didn't know much about until I started looking into the ultras, mm. which is, you know, a period of, you know, roughly 15 years where you have far left and far right terrorist groups bombing each other, assassinations, uh, civilians being killed in their hundreds, uh, or, you know, almost on a daily basis. It's almost like a low level guerrilla war. And uh, the ultras kind of emerge in the, in the late 60s and kind of take that colour and pageantry of a political protest and take it to the to the stands. And in this kind of culture, they have flares, pyrotechnics, uh, banners, they send messages, and they have a very hierarchical structure with a capo, kind of leader of the group, who's at the front uh, with a megaphone or, you know, just with a loud voice, leading the chants and, and kind of setting the kind of agenda for his group and often they were extremely political I mean um, reflective of the society that they found themselves in so um, at the time many groups in Italy were very left wing because for instance in Roma in Rome uh, Rome was a very left wing city mm. I mean you had or certainly within the centre of the city the communist party was very was very powerful so you it, was un, it wasn't unusual to see groups like the Fedayeen who you know are named after a Palestinian kind of liberation uh, terrorist organisation from that period. So, uh, you know, obviously later on in the 80s, uh, as Italy becomes, and, there is, and there's much more of a foothold for the far right, especially in the big cities, um, you know, the groups then reflect more far right mm. uh, politics as well. So 
ultras are this, you know, this incredible, incredibly complex, hierarchical, um, kind of anti-authority, anti-police institution that uh, goes beyond in support of their football team. And 24-7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you are dedicated to it. Mm. And that's why it's, it's a youth movement, because once you get older you don't have the time to dedicate that much mm. to your team. And so there is also a cycle of, of renewal. You know, at some point, when you're 30, you're, you're almost a pensioner in the ultra scene. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you move on, you get a family, and then you have the young blood who come in at 13, 14. Mm. And so there's this constant kind of churn uh, of youth and vigour. And so it was a continuously evolving uh, scene. And then what happens really from there, I mean, this is why it's a global book and not a book just about Italy, is that the ultra scene then spreads all around the world, really first to the Balkans and to the kind of South Europe. Um, and then after the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, Russia, uh, Northern Europe and Germany, Scandinavia, uh, North Africa in the, at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, Turkey, Asia, and, you know, it, South America as well. South America is a bit of a different situation because mm. they also have, you know, in Argentina, you have the Ballas Bravas, right? Mm. Which is, you know, if a lot of people will know about like Boca Juniors, for instance, who I, I go and meet their batter, which was mm. La Dosa, which is one of the most uh, kind of infamous and feared kind of fan organizations in the world. And in many respects, they're extremely similar to Ultras. And that's not that surprising because they develop in the 1940s. But um, they've they've developed and and evolved independently from the movement you it, just mentioned there. It, it's it is independent, but it's not independent because right. if you look at uh, Boca, the neighbourhood, and in fact most of Argentina, you know, of course, there's a strong connection with Italy. Yeah. Um, and I think in Boca, the neighbourhood, in fact, in Buenos Aires, I think this is seventy percent of people can trace some kind of uh, lineage back to Italy, mm. and so uh, you have immigrants coming from Genoa. Uh, Boca's nickname is even, you know, a Argent, Argent, Spanish Argentine version of Genoese. Mm. So, you know, there is this kind of cross pollination of, you know, it's the same people, the same idea, the same kind of fan culture. Mm. You know, Genoa is a very important port city. Football comes through Genoa into Italy with mm. with the British, mm. um, and it comes out of Genoa into Argentina, mm. into Boca. So it's no surprise that they're two very very similar kind of fan cultures develop. Um, and then you've got the Torcida as well in, in Brazil, mm. which develops. And again, it's a story of globalization. I mean, I've started the book in Croatia, which has the Europe's oldest fan group, which actually predates uh, 1968 and the start of the first groups in Italy, mm. which is a group called Torcida of Hydruk Split. And that gets formed because Yugoslavia plays at the 1950 World Cup. Mm. And the Yugoslav players go to the Maracanã, uh, uh, play against Brazil, lose in the famous 1950 World Cup where mm. uh, the Malacanazo, where mm. Uruguay... Brazil lost to Uruguay, Brazil in, the lost to the Uruguay yeah. in the final. Yeah. But this game they win and there's there's a, there's an amazing story about how one of the Torcidas of Flamengo is basically, uh, the guy called Jaime uh, de Carvalho is basically told, like, you are, you can be now the, not just the, the band of Flamengo, you can be the band of Brazil. Mm. And so they go and they hear the sound of the Torcida and they're so impressed by it and they're so intimidated by it uh, that they take it back and ex not even they don't even have a recording of it. They explain to a group of students what it's like, and they try to recreate it. Right. Okay. And then get banned for <laughs> right. for, for, for like thirty five years. Um, but so it shows that it's not um, South America is almost it's it's kind of a, a parallel 
um, fan culture. To but there ultras, are links between them. But links between them. And in a way, what the ultras then become as globalization speeds up, technology improves, uh, television becomes ubiquitous, color television becomes ubiquitous. Um, what we now know as ultras, if we see them today, is actually a kind of mix of all of them mm. and English hooliganism, which is still aesthetically at least a very powerfully influential thing, even though it doesn't really exist. So it's anymore. almost been homogenized now. Yeah. So it's been, yeah. I mean, yeah, in a way. Uh, and it's, so when you, like, the reason why I end with Indonesia, which is a fascinating fan culture, yeah. is that when you go to a game with the ultras of a team in Indonesia, you notice that they will have the British Railway sign uh, on a flag next to uh, uh, we, uh, everyone hates us and we don't care from Millwall. Right, so a lot of influence from the kind of old hooligan travelling in his yeah, 80s and stuff. Exactly, you know, mm. and, they, and, they'll, and they'll mix that up with kind of a Brazilian style, a style drum, mm. you know, or and uh, the type of kind of organisational structure you might see in uh, in Argentina, but they'll still use the language of of Italy. Mm. So, you know, there's a group from PSS Slayman on, which is a game I go and see in the South East of Java Island and they're called Bergata Curva Sud, mm. you know? Uh, so it's all, it's all mixed together. You know, after the game, they do an Icelandic hand clap. Right. And so you can see how globalization has kind of taken all of that and it isn't just mashing it together and imposing a Western or kind of, global culture on someone else. I mean, there's already a uh, indigenous fan culture that's get that gets kind of pulled up into it as well, which gives it its own um, unique flavor. So yeah, it's, it's kind of everyone's influenced each other. And, and when you see this spread all around the world and you see it in every league, you realize that when you explain it, you also, you're kind of telling a story of not just football spread, but because that's a well-known story about how football becomes, you know, from Victorian or how we codified it in Victorian Britain to being the biggest sport in the world. It's almost a story of globalisation. Yeah, it? it is a story yeah. of globalisation, but what yeah. hasn't been talked about is how how the fan culture has done much the same. And it's not necessarily centred in Britain, which is the mm. story we understand about football. Mm. It's it, it kind of, the most the biggest driver for this because it was the best, most colourful league in the world was Serie A mm. and Italian ultra culture, which is why the language is so, so, so dominant when you, everybody's called a tifosi, uh, tif, uh, capo yeah. tifosi, yeah. Uh, tifo is, mm. you know, everybody uses, everybody uses Italian uh, phrases and language. Mm. And, and why do you think it travelled then? Why do you think it made that sort of journey as short as a journey as it might be, because I understand Italy, you know, football's very popular in Italy and I presume it was in the 60s as well. Why did it make that move from a political kind of point into the terraces of a football stadium? Well, it does. I mean, it, it, it retains its political character. Mm. That's the thing. I mean, you notice that the groups, you know, they although the rivalries aren't necessarily political because there's this, there's a phrase called campanilismo, which means bell towers, mm. effectively, in, in Italian. And Italy is a pretty new country. Um, it was, you know, it was unified um, in the 19th century. And before that, it was a set collection of warring city-states, you know, under occupation by various different empires. I mean, it was, it was a patchwork, yeah, really. Yeah. And so when when there is a unified state, I mean, there's that famous um, famous phrase from one of its founders, uh, you know, we've made Italy, now we must make Italians. Mm. And so, you know, Campanilismo talks about the idea that your allegiance is not necessarily to the state or even to your region, but to your bell tower, because every city and, and town sure. has a church. And so that's your 
Yeah. That's that's where your allegiance lies. And that's why football rivalries in Italy are so fierce because it's not necessarily left or right or north and south, which is often said, but it's about your bell tower. Mm. That's it. So it's, okay. it, it, it can be even more even more micro than that. And over the years, I mean, I mean, Italy's a really important chapter in this book and you, you realise the very political uh, nature of it all. I mean, there's a there's a chapter when I go to Italy and I meet uh, Fabrizio uh, Piccitelli, who's diabolic. Yeah. The, lead- the Atalanta capo. No, this is the uh, the leader of the far right, neo-fascist, Irducible uh, okay. okay. in uh, of Lazio. Okay, and you know we we go and meet him, and uh, it takes a long time for us to get access to him to speak to him because he doesn't really give interviews to Westerners. How did you go about facilitating that then? Well, so this is the, I mean, the, the, the hardest part of the book was getting access because as a journalist, this is the thing. I mean, one of the reasons, 1312 means ACAB. It's an al- alphabet code. It means all cops are bastards, right? Right. It's, um, okay. It's a number that I saw literally on every stadium, everywhere I went to in the world. Right. Jerusalem, uh, Sarajevo, uh, Tokyo. It didn't matter. Every stadium had this number. It's a, it's a unifying code of ultras everywhere, which is a, a hatred of authority, but also a hatred of police. And what I found is the flip side of the same coin was also the hatred of the media, mm-hmm. especially hatred of journalists, yeah. um, which is one reason why they covet their secrecy so much. Um, and, and it's very difficult to get access to. Uh, we are untrustworthy. We are part of the reason why ultra culture is derided. I mean, it creates a kind of circle firing squad as well. So mm. firing squad, because even if you, let's say, if you wanted to do a positive story, they wouldn't let you in because mm. they wouldn't trust you. So therefore the, the old stories get perpetuated. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was very, very difficult. I mean, this is something, I mean, I've been in, in, in the scene and I've always been attracted to the ultra culture because of some of the best stories are there. And it's also the forbidden fruit as well. Like you want yeah. to be involved and you want to find out more about it because they don't want you to find out about but it. But James, presumably you can't just turn up and start standing with them and start talking to them, particularly if you don't share the language. No. So there's a process, right? No, there is a process. And so what happened was I was, I was trying to utilize as many of my contacts as possible, try to find the best possible people because it's, it's kind of an honor system, you know, yeah. that somebody has to vouch for you. Mm. And if you're there and they can vouch and somebody who they know, they know their face and they've got enough prestige in the scene and they will say, don't, there's one time I went, I was in the Polyud stadium in the North stand and a colleague of mine, a friend of mine who, uh, you know, was an ultra and he's not really involved in the scene so much anymore, but still goes to the game. So he's still known. Uh, he took me along, and I so I so essentially like I, I'm I'm his property. Right. I remember taking a picture with my phone, which was in early days of doing the book, which is a no no. You can't take pictures. You can't film anything. No. And a guy grabs me, um, and if he wasn't there, I mean, I would have been taken to taken to the cleaners. Yeah. Um, but he intervened and said, "No, he's with me." And he goes, yeah. "Oh yeah, okay, you know." So there, it's yeah. this. It's a. It's an old, you know, he knows him because of, of all his old, he's put in years of work. But you're writing a story though. Do they know that? So they don't know that, but... Okay. Um, the, so they know that now, presumably. Oh, well, I mean, they will do. Oh, they will do. Uh, but at that point, I wasn't necessarily writing the chapter. I wanted to experience it first. Right, okay. So actually, I, d- I didn't include anything from that from that trip in that on that occasion. I went back to Split like three or four times. I mean, mm. uh, night bus from Belgrade. Right. Um, but the, on other occasions, for, I mean, uh, Martino, who works for Copper 90, uh, Martino Ressi, who you sh- everybody should follow, who's a fantastic journalist, does a lot of great stuff. 
a very energetic presence on Copper 90. Right. Um, I, I mean, he he has developed, basically developed incredible contacts within Italian fan scene as well. And then, you know, managed to navigate the, the incredibly, ex, you know, polarised politics as well. So with him, he helped me out loads getting, uh, you know, trying to get access to people. And because people are used to a very sensationalist way of covering it, um, what we wanted to to let them know was that it it wasn't this wasn't an expose. No, I wanted to, to find out how like what's the history? How did it happen? Even when I sat down with Diabolic in his in the Lazio uh, Illuducibile clubhouse next to a portrait of Mussolini, right, and his his uh, his underlings uh, when he gets out of the car. I remember they all gave. Really, they all gave the uh, they all gave a Nazi salute. They all gave the, the Roman salute, which Roman is a Nazi salute. I'm sorry, but yeah, 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 but yeah. It, they all gave it. I mean, he he was you know, I mean, I mean, he's assassinated three months later, so he can't yeah. uh, talk for himself anymore. But he would have, I mean, he openly called himself a fascist. He was proud to call himself a fascist. Um, mm. So me saying that probably isn't uh, too big a deal. But when he was quite surprised because when we sat down, the first thing he did was roll a joint, right, and hand it to me, which right. was you know, are you gonna are you going to be in this scene or you're not going to be in this scene? You know, so we, we did, we partook, you know, and, uh, the first thing he said, so I guess you want to know about, you want to know about the violence. Yeah. Because that's what the questions he's always asked, always asked about the greatest hits, all the fights of the eighties and nineties, you know, what was it, you know, what was your greatest fight and all this. And in a way, you know, I did want to hear about that. I wanted to hear what his views were on violence, but I, I asked him different questions Mm. that he'd been asked before and that's why we ended up having a two-hour interview where he, you know, he, quite, he it, was, it was a brilliant interview where he told us about his kind of worldview, I mean, quite frightening worldview, but mm. also how Dilla Duchibla came to life and how and what it meant to him and the people around him. And What do you think gets someone like that up in the morning? What do you think, What is it all based around his own sort of personal, as twisted as you or I might, might find it, his own personal pride about where he's from and, and his heritage? Is that is that what gets him up in the it's, morning? It's, or why, it, why is he doing it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's about, I mean, he's he's from Rome. Um, he, he had, uh, he was, he knew he was of, of the far right from a young age. Mm. He grew up in an area where there was, uh, it was mainly far left Romas from Fedayin, mm. uh, ultras from Fedayin, and he, he kicked against that. And mm. as he said, at uh, 14, 15, he was a bastard and he had mm. a collection of friends who were also bastards and they just wanted to come together as a gang and they found uh, identity and belonging in it. And that became the, you know, the, what he then took over was the other Duchible and took that onto a much wider, it's, it's a sense of belonging and sense of community. And he didn't even think that, I, I asked everybody where I went, what, how do you describe ultras? Hmm. And actually it was, it was amazing that everybody gave a different answer. Like, and a lot of people struggled to give an answer to what an ultra was. Hmm. And he, he, I mean, his answer was, I, put, I don't, I don't see the Duchible as ultras. I put them above ultras. Right. Um, it was for him a gang and uh, the footballs are almost irrelevant to it footballs are almost irrelevant to it because he was also someone you know he, he openly told me he, he didn't know he couldn't tell you who his favourite Lazio players were at that moment you know it wasn't I mean he just spent two years in prison right. on drug trafficking charges so I guess he probably didn't watch a lot of football in the no. past two years but it was also fascinating that he didn't you know that he was and I found that quite a lot like the leader of the one of the biggest firms in Ukraine for Dinamo Kiev, you know, he, he wasn't that interested in the football. Um, there's a lot, you know, it was, it was, it, what was, in, it could have been a gang of graffiti artists or Hell's mm. Angels or handball players or whatever mm. it is. But it was, it was about a small community of people who wanted to have a sense of belonging and trust 
And that's why trust is absolutely at the bedrock of everything. This is almost the way you're describing this. It's interesting you say it because I've, I've, I've suspected for a while now that, and I'm talking about particularly, you know, English football hooligans, um, the football feels to me like a bit of an afterthought. They don't really mind if they watch a game or not. And what you're saying there is completely solidifying that opinion. Is it, what you're describing to me feels a bit like organised crime rather, it, than, well, rather than football. I'll tell you, on, on one side, yes. I mean, you know, there are people who, who aren't that interested and it's, about, and it's about the community, you know. So it's not necessarily whether it's organised crime or whatever. It's about having a group of people where that bond is completely unbreakable. Hmm. And that's a very powerful thing for all humans to want. And they've just found a way of getting that through football. Um, at the same time, you know, most of the ultras I spoke to outside of the the, 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 the handful of leaders that I spoke to, you know, it was a football thing. That's what, that's the basis of what it is. I mean, every subculture you go to, I mean, I mentioned graffiti, biking, whatever, you know, at, the, at, at punk rock, you know, at its root is a band playing. At its root is spray painting something on a wall. It's an art project. There's a prime mover, basically. So there is a yeah. there is a there's a motive there. Yeah. And then when you see then what you know the, the subculture that are, is around it, of course, it, it becomes something vast and mm. huge and very far removed in some respects from from the origins. But there was a there was an absolute love, like the the, the rank and file who are standing there in the curve. Uh, you know, it is about football and an obsession with football. An obsession, I mean, maybe not necessarily even the game, because I mean, a lot of people turn their back to the football. Yeah. The capo doesn't. The capo doesn't see the game. Mm. You know, and there's, when I asked uh, one guy, a leading ultra from Roma, about this, he he said, you know, Roma to my back, Rome to my front, mm. and he to him it was all about giving his team the advantage over over the opposition, and it, you know, if that meant him not watching the game, then that's what he would do. Mm. So, uh, but then. You mentioned organised crime, and there is an there is you know a huge streak uh, crossover with organised crime and uh, football fan culture, especially in ultras. In and this is something I spoke to one the, Il Boccia, the leader of the Atalanta ultras, who we'll talk about in a minute, I'm mm. sure. But you know, he was like, you know, every curve in every curve, especially in the north of Italy, has been taken over by organised crime, and we can see there's been a, a string of of police raids recently on ultras groups from Juventus and beyond where, you know, they will find, I mean, they even found a bloody air to air missile from the Qatari air force. One of them had bought alongside loads of kind of literature, uh, Nazi literature, hmm. all this kind of stuff. And it connected to Camorra hmm. uh, as well as kind of far right uh, militias. I mean, it's, hmm. it's, it's, you know, it does happen. And especially in, in South America, when you see the Ballas Palavas, mm. you know, there's no doubt that there's a strong, enduring connection to organised crime. And I think one of the reasons that is, is that if you, li if you live outside the law or purport to live outside the law, and that's what like this one, two, one, three, one, two, you know, ACAB, you know, it's a, sh it's a short, journey to then saying well do you know what else is outside of the law mm. you know being being outside the law mm. like properly mm. so you can see how that ethos of like being against authority against the state against you know in some way society itself um and creating your own society how that you know you could you could see organized crime as being more your flavor than than the police or authority mm. so it's it's not that surprising to see that crossover 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them, and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble. This is a really immersive book as well. This is not a book that's been written, it seems to me, by um, making a couple of phone calls and, and digging up a couple of books from the library. I mean, you've, you've immersed yourself within well, I did it. that as well. Yeah, I'm sure you did. No, <laughs> so, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting it's not meticulously researched. I'm just saying that you, you, it's almost a gonzo book. It's, you're in there doing it. And, um, and um, the, the one particular chapter that really sticks in my mind that read that subject is when you're in Sweden with the Hammerby fans who've teamed up with Bronby fans from Denmark and looking to, to go and have a, a good old-fashioned dust-up with a bunch of I-Core fans. Um, and you're, I mean, really, you're running, I, mean, I don't want to give too much away because I think people should read the book, but you're running with them. You're, you're a part of this at this point, James, and, and I wonder how that felt for you. It was, um, I mean, it was the, there was a big, all the way through the book, there was a big moral issue that I had yeah. uh, because in many cases, because it's a, it's a scene of extremes. Uh, you, you know, I think I've even write this line. There aren't centrist ultras. You know, you have uh, most ultras I meet, especially in Eastern Europe, the Balkans and beyond are, you know, uh, ultra nationalists on the far right connection to neo-Nazis, connection to neo-fascists. Mm. And so that's that's not the entire scene. I mean, if you go to Germany, if you go to Sweden, and Sweden's quite apolitical, but if you go to Germany, you know, you see groups, as many left-wing groups as right-wing groups, and sure. we've seen in the past couple of weeks, you know, their story has come to the fore as they're campaigning to preserve 50 plus one. Yeah. A lot of people are against racism, a lot of groups against sexism, 
But um, Fortuna, Fortuna Düsseldorf would be quite an example of quite a left wing. Kind yeah, of Werder Bremen. I mean, I mean Freiburg as well. Freiburg. I mean, Freiburg. I go to Freiburg yeah. and and uh, you know with one of their groups because they their group you know along with a group from Hanover mm. really take really saved fifty plus one. It was really in danger a couple of years ago, and they 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 successfully fought against their Monday night football and that kind exactly. of stuff. Exactly. Well, so yeah. it's, you know, so you, you've got that as well. But you know, at the same time, there are people that I was speaking to and interviewing who. You know, had had pretty had you know extremist views, which you know, uh, you know, they, then for want of a better phrase, I mean, they're they're on the on the Nazi spectrum. You know, mm. there's one guy I, I remember interviewing who's you know very quiet, friendly guy. You know, and he's got four swastikas on his on his head, and later on I found out he's got swastikas tattooed on his feet as well. Um, you know, and so when you hear these views, and we had this with Diabolic as well when he was telling us his worldview, and I'm like, at what point do I? What point retelling this story? Am I promoting endorsing his agenda it, yeah, or endorsing yeah. it? Yeah. And Did so, you challenge any of them at any point? Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, you ask, you know, you, you, you are challenging them. But I think that if there was a camera crew there, you know, I think I might get a lot of criticism for not, you know, walking out or not, hmm. you know, demanding line, or, or demand, yeah. you know, being kind of aggressively uh, taking the task over it. But I, But at the same time, the te- that technique I don't think would have worked in that scenario for safety mm. reasons but also you know the technique that I always looked at and, and I think that they have had very similar criticism as well mm. is when you like, if if uh, Homish Catalonia was one book that I read that was very influential another one was Them by John Ronson yeah. which is which I've I, read that yeah. which I, yeah. I, 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 just fantastic a yeah. wonderful book so he starts running with Alex Jones and all that yeah kind of yeah. Stuff, yeah and I know there's he's written a kind of mere culpa since because yeah. because Alex Jones then becomes this kind of monstrous figure Do they try and break into Bilderberg at some point yeah yeah, yeah. And, yeah. But, and he's and he's like oh my god maybe they've got a, maybe they've got a point here yeah you know maybe yeah. Alex Jones has a point here yeah. And it, but and it's also with Louis Theroux as well, which is if you want to ask these, you, you do ask searching questions, but you've also got to be proximate, you've got to be close, and you've got to hmm. um, also bring out the fact that a lot of the people who are saying monstrous things aren't necessarily monsters, or you know they love their families, they have kids, hmm. you know ninety percent, ninety percent of their life is is completely normal, and then they have this part of their life which is absolute absolutely abhorrent what they believe in, hmm. and so. I took that kind of attitude to it, but it was a constant moral re-evaluation about what I was doing and the type of questions I was asking and the kind of way I would, I would write it afterwards. And, and, but then the other issue as well was when I witnessed kind of acts of violence uh, and Sweden that you brought up was one, one such thing. I mean, the subculture of the subculture of ultras, which I think is going to be something that, is only going to get bigger and people are going to hear more about is this arranged fighting scene. Yeah, this is what, you, what, what I'm alluding to. There, yeah, right? so yeah. It, it, it's called, I mean, it's it's massive in Eastern Europe. Uh, in Russia and, and Ukraine, it's called Okola Footballer, like around football it means. Mm. And uh, in Poland, it's called Ustavka. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's essentially a kind of type of martial art, like combat sport. And you have, violence doesn't take place at the stadiums anymore. You go to these secretive, highly legal, highly violent fights, uh, which are arranged through encrypted apps like Telegram. Mm. Um, and you go and, you, you know, it's, you can't find the videos of these fights anywhere. It's really underground. And you, you know, to get access to it is very, very difficult. Um, but then, you know, they've got rules. You'll play 10 against 10 
15 against 15, 100 against 100. And when they fight, I mean, people train in, you know, combat martial arts. Is this what MMA. we saw from the Russian fans in Marseille? In, the reason in, why they were yeah. like that is because they have they have been groomed and trained in a call of footballer. A lot yeah. of the guys you meet uh, don't drink. Right. Uh, they're straight edge. So they treat themselves as athletes, basically. So they treat themselves, I mean, and there's a lot of steroid use as well. Mm. So, uh, but I mean, there's not drug testing yet sure. in the scenes. No, not really. um, but yeah, so they, they really, they take it seriously and it's a dedicated lifestyle. Um, and so then, you know, uh, what happens is you also get, so you get these fights taking place and they're extremely violent. And uh, I went to, when I went to Sweden, I actually got access to one of these mm. and, it was, I thought, okay, so all the time you're calculating what is the risk in this situation. Mm. And the the guy who runs the kind of firm for Hammerby was, you know, very friendly guy, very interesting, very intelligent guy as well. And, it, it, you know, he's very upfront about it, which was, you know, this is about, uh, of course, it's a culture that I love. Mm -hmm. uh, I love, I love the firm. Uh, I love the connection to the football club, mm. which isn't always the case. I met firms in, or I met people who, who knew about firms in Ukraine who are part of firms for football clubs that don't exist anymore. The only thing that exists of, of still football clubs gone out of business, but the firm still exists. Right. And, uh, but you know, he's, you know, and it was for him, it was, it was an adrenaline thing. You know, mm. it was, it was purely the rush of, of the fight. And I thought, well, I, once I knew that I was allowed to go in, which is an extremely rare thing to do. Why did they grant you particularly? Because I think, I think, because we did an interview and we sat down and talked about it for a long while. And, I recognised I recognised why he did it. I mean, I, I, I wasn't a hooligan. I, did, I I wasn't involved in football hooliganism as a kid, but I was, I, you know, I, I got in quite a lot of trouble with the police. Um, you know, I was arrested numerous times. Um, but it was, for me, the, the chase from the police was was the most, like, that was, that was the drug. Mm. And like, so when he talked about that, we could have talked about this, you know, okay, I can, I can, I can recognise, I can understand that. Yeah, and I think because of that, he he was like, okay, you can come along. I mean, uh, Mikkel, who's who was kind of my guide in the Swedish scene and also uh, in in South America, a great great Swedish guy. Uh, you know, who's in his fifties now, but he's like a godfather of the ultra scene in mm. um, in in uh, in Sweden and and had really good connections in in South America. And we we travelled around everywhere together. I mean, he's, he even warned me not even to ask to go and watch the fight. That's right. how that's how off the, off limits it is. Right. Um, but I did, and he said, yeah, you know, f you know, come along, and he let me come along. And I thought, okay, like this isn't like disorganised English hooliganism, which is you know, it was just you turn up. There's a fight. It could be anywhere. It could be in an urban environment. There were rules, mm. and there was a certain part of me was like, well, if they're going somewhere where they're fighting amongst each other and it's away from civilians, then you know, okay. I mean, it's illegal, but ultimately, you're not fearful of being um, mistaken for one of them. Though. Well, this is the thing because it's a very, very, very controlled scene. Um, if you're there and you're not fighting, there's yeah. no way that you're going to be because there's there's a kind of honor network here. Yeah. So if you're if there's ten versus ten, you and they're losing, you can't you can't bring in two people to jump in, right? Okay. Because then you're you're persona non grata and you're kicked out, right? Okay. And you will never fight in the scene again. You're blacklisted. Mm -hmm. All of this is done through social media and through word of mouth. Mm. So you know, there's even after they've beaten the hell out of each other, there is a there's an honour afterwards. People will shake hands. They you know they sometimes even go for a drink right. with each other's afterwards, or right. not drink, but you know, yeah. Um, 
have a joint, whatever. Bottle, bottle of mineral water. A bottle of mineral yeah. water. Yeah. I mean, some some of the guys I met, some some of them did do cocaine, some of them did do weed, but alcohol was the no no because that's what really affects. That's what puts weight on. So, right, okay. I guess cocaine doesn't put that much. Hasn't got okay. that much calories. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so yeah, it was it was. I thought it was a controllable environment mm. because if you're there as an observer and a rare observer, then. Um, there's no way that the, the violence could you could be mistaken of being there because there mm. are certain norms mm. within that culture that protect you. But unfortunately, I mean, I think it was a 60 versus 60 fight and the other side didn't turn up. Mm. And that's when it turned into something else. And again, I had to consider when I, they said, right, okay, well, we're going to go, we're going to find them in their, in their pub. Because they've dishonoured this whole arrangement, so they're, gonna, they're now going to be punished for that, essentially. Exactly. And so, uh, and this had never happened before. So... So, so as a le- journalist, you're presumably quite happy about this because this is a story, right? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I'm disappointed in the one way because I thought I would finally get to see what this yeah. kind of fight looked like. But then they said, "Okay, we're going to go and we're going to go and um, go and find them." And I was actually with somebody who, you know, one somebody connected to Hamby, and he was like, "Right, you know, this is where I get out. This is, you know, I can't get involved in this." Mm. And I had to make a decision. It was literally a door of a of of the van of the guy that was going to take me along, and the guy leaving. Mm. And it's like, what do I do? Do I do I go? Do I say that I don't want to see this, or do I go and see how it shakes down? And so I go. Mm. I get in the van. And um, and then we go along and then, you know, there, there's got to be 30, 40 of these guys now, maybe more. And they get to this, this Solna, this area of uh, North Stockholm. And although, yeah, North Stockholm. And we get out and he, I remember him saying at the back, you know, stay at the back, you know, you can film it if you want. I'm like, huh. Okay, so I do. I uh, film it and I'm chasing, and I'm, I'm trying to run after them. I'm quite, I mean, I don't, I might not look it, uh, but I'm quite, I've run quite a lot. So, I mean, I can, I could keep up with them, but these guys moving fast. Mm. I couldn't really keep up with them. And mm. there were, there was, there were a good 10 meters ahead. And then, you know, they ran, you know, and, and attacked this kind of pub in this district. And, you know, it, from going from somewhere where, you know, you, you thought you were going to be observing something in a controlled environment mm. to then seeing something that is completely uncontrolled. And, and now you are part of it. You, it's, it's, this is out in the wild. You are now, you are now part of this. What do you do? Do you now pull the ripcord? Do you now get out? Mm. And there was one moment where I, I, I'm running and I run past them and then I'm scared because I'm, what if, what if the other group then attacks us and they Mm. think I'm part of them? Mm. Am I safer to just say, no, I'm not part of them. Or am I safer sticking with them? Because Mm. otherwise maybe I'd be beaten. Maybe I'd be stabbed. Who knows? Mm. So I made the decision to keep running with them. And I remember running past this one guy who was kind of unconscious on the floor. I mean, there's blood everywhere. And there's one, uh, one of his guys holding him up and, and just looked at me with absolute hatred. And, Mm. and it was like, it was a really, it was a really difficult moment because you could tell that he thought I was, I was them. And, you know, I mean, I guess to him I was, and, Mm. and that carried on. We went to another bar and they, they, I was following them and they, and then they smashed up another bar and that's when the police arrived and we had to run away and I managed to escape because I'm like, if the police catch me in this scenario, I'm, you know, you're banged to rights basically. Yeah. I mean, you know, or, I mean, I, I didn't do anything violent. I could prove it, but, um, you know, there'd be some very, very, very difficult questions about who I was with and why I was there and what I was doing and, um, you know, once I got my press card out, you know, it would it would have been very difficult, and I managed to I managed to you know get out of the situation, 
But when I was writing that down, I had to sit down. It was it was the most difficult part of the whole book because I could have not put it in, um, and I could not. I, I I could have thought about not writing my culpability or my thoughts in that moment. But I thought that that is that was disingenuous. I mean, this did happen. Mm. I was there. I did have to make a kind of moral judgment, um, and for good or ill. Uh, I decided to describe that process, thought process and what happened because ultimately that did happen and that mm. does happen. And I think that is an important element of the scene that needs to be reflected. And I thought it, I, I, there's there's no way I could live with myself if I didn't write it and I wasn't honest with both myself and, and the readers. And in the front of the book, you say that, you know, you're not, you're not ascribing a value judgment to any of this stuff you're saying that you want the readers to make their own decisions about what they read so i wonder whether you are in light of that and in light of what you've just described there whether there was a fear on your part of, a, of a, almost like an inadvertent glamorization of what's happened i mean yeah i mean there was of course um and when i was writing this i was you know you, you're always thinking about that hmm. and i didn't want that to be the case and i think I think I make it quite clear that these aren't views I agree with or necessarily, um, you know, the, the violence isn't something I agree with. But also, if I'm honest, I mean, I've got to say that I can understand the motivation for it because that's the whole point of this. Why do people do this? I mean, mm. it is it is a thrill. It is a it is a it's a drug. It's a mm. drug. And, you know, there's a moment at the end of the Sweden chapter where, you know, I've got back to my hotel and I've escaped. And, you know, I there's a there's almost a feeling of elation hmm. and adrenaline basically. Yeah. And I thought I, you know, I could have, I mean, my publisher wanted me to take it out and I, I was like, no, I want to keep it in. Cause that, that, I think that is, uh, I wanted readers to understand that that is why people do the seduction this. of it. Basically. It's a seduction of violence. And that's, yeah. you know, that is what makes this go round. That's what makes this subculture of the subculture go round. Hmm. And not just that, I think violence in general, whether it's a, whether it's organized combat sport to, hmm you know, um, Friday night punch up outside of a pub, you know, it's, it's domination and it's adrenaline. And, um, I think that by describing that, I think that that, well, by not describing it, I think that would have been, I think that would have, I think that not describing that would have been a dereliction of duty, I think. And how much does violence play in the ultras scene in general? Is it, is it, is it, does it vary from place to place? I mean, there's, so this is another question I had. I, I was always, I was always summing up all the way through. Is that, um, I mean, ultras will tell you, or groups all around the world. You know, you just want a journalist. That is, I mean, not me personally. Although I, I would be considered part of this beast that is journalism. Yeah. By them, uh, regardless of what you, you know, you, you're all, you're all the same basically. Yeah. And that uh, all they're interested in is, you know, uh, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, when yeah. there's fights, when there's violence, all you're interested in is, is the violence. But at the same time, and, and you know, the ultra scene is just full of moral contradictions, full mm. of it, you know. Mm. Yes, they're annoyed that we concentrate on the violence or that my, my colleagues might concentrate on the violence. But at the same time, you know, it is a really big part of a large part of the scene. I mean, not, maybe not as extreme as... Um, the, the kind of arranged fighting scene, which is kind of right on the edge of what ultra culture is, but even you know, I mean, on on a almost a comic level, I mean, people are stealing each other's banners, yeah, um, and that leads to conflict, and that leads to fighting, and you know, a lot of groups also get their 
reputations from the way the media have kind of reported on that violence. Mm. And they're kind of quite proud of how that, that kind of comes out. So on the one hand, they are, you know, against how we or how journalists kind of portray it. But on the other hand, you know, there's no doubt that it is, you know, it is, has been a quite important part of the scene and quite, mm. you know, integral part of the scene in many respects. Um, so it is, it is, it can be quite a, it can be quite a dangerous world. Um, and it's also a world that, you know, there's one, one journalist in particular, Pierre Luigi Spagnolo, who did, who wrote a great book in Italy about, about ultras. And, you know, it's, he told me, you know, it is a scene that's learned how to protect itself. And that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, it's not afraid to have a fight because if it doesn't fight back, it would be crushed. And I think there is some, some truth in that as well. And I wonder, one of the questions that kind of sprung to mind upon reading the book is, I wonder if the um, the prevalence of this is is happening as a reaction to football, the modernisation of football and it being perceived to be taken away from its roots, in quotes, by TV companies, by commercialisation and all the rest of it. Um, is that seen, in your opinion, an increase in this activity or has it always just always been there? I mean, in, in a certain respect, it's always been there. Um, if you, I mean, you speak to, there's, there's a chapter in Germany and there's a couple of interviews there where, you know, as, lo- as long as football has existed in Germany, there's been violence. Right. Um, it's just the type of violence and the organisation of the violence. Mm. So for a long time, uh, you know, German football in particular, you know, it, they had a very English style hooliganism, which is mm. kind of nihilistic, mm. uh, but also, I mean, probably contradictory to saying it's nihilistic, but also connected a lot to the far right, you know, mm. but it was, you know, this disorganized urban violence, basically. Mm. Um, and then Ultra Scene arrives in the 1990s uh, with the arrival of Eurosport, basically, and free to air mm. uh, Syria A. And people start copying that, which starts changing the scene to be a bit more colourful, a bit more, bit, bit less violent. Uh, but then the influence of the of the organised fighting scene, which kind of it does, I mean, Germany is part of that, but it gets popularised in Eastern Europe. It changes the nature of the violence mm. uh, later on into this much more into the scene that we see today. So I'm not sure if it's more, but it's certainly changed from being disorganized to to being to being much more organized but saying that one of the uh, f- kind of the moral the moral fuel at the center of of ultras everywhere is this anti-commercialization anti-modern football mm. uh, anti-moderno calcio you know this is the, the idea that there was this bygone age of football that is being taken away by money uh, by tv by uh, technology by capitalism and you know, that's why you find a lot of groups, even though they have divergent views, they share a thread, not just the hatred of the police, the 1312, but also this idea that uh, this bygone age needs to be preserved. And that's why in Germany in particular, you have a lot of groups that have very different opinions. For instance, will join forces and share a view on 50 plus one on Monday oh, Night Football. Deep hot. Or Deep My Hop, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, you, you can see what's interesting with the Deep My Hop case, the, ho- the owner of Hoffenheim, is that he's he's a hated figure, not quite as much as RB Leipzig. Mm. RB Leipzig is the one where, you know, and there's a, there's a great story about Dinamo Dresden fans throwing a severed uh, ball's head onto mm. the pitch mm. when they played Leipzig in the cup. Mm. Um, and they got a big fine for that. 
but Le- Leipzig are really the kind of the, the king rat of, of of German football. But Hop is almost as bad, and mm. and there's been a kind of campaign against him. And the way that that story was kind of played out in the British media, in particular, was that like this was just like abuse towards an owner of a club because of club rivalry. Whereas actually, if you if you think about what they're actually arguing about, yeah, there was bu- abuse. I mean, calling him a son of a bitch and mm. son of a whore. Mm. You know, there's a, there was that, there was that tifo of him. You know, dressed as like it was supposed to be his mum, but it was mm. him like dressed in a dress, and mm. it's distasteful. Mm. But if we look at the issue at its at its core, what people are arguing against is him being able to circumvent the fifty plus one rule mm. because they believe in this economic model of ownership in German football preserves to some extent what they think football should be, which is a game for the fans in the stadium. Mm. And that is a very complex view to take. It's not an unthinking, um, it's not an unthinking, uh, abusive, um, you know, hooligan act. Mm. Like that's a complicated issue to get thousands of people to agree on. And they do. And they articulate it sometimes in a very <sighs> forefront, you know, in a very aggressive Pro- way, way, a yeah. problematic yeah. way. Yeah. But ultimately that is a, that's, I mean, there's nothing comparable in English football. There's nothing comparable in a lot of places. And I mm. think, um, you know, <laughs> the Dietmar Hop thing encapsulates in many ways, the, the good parts and the bad parts of the ultra scene. And, I wonder if you fear any ramifications for some of the stuff you've written in this book, particularly alongside the the idea of that the Swedish organised fighting we talked about. You go to a lot of different countries around the world, speak to a lot of difficult characters. Do you, do you fear? Is that something you're fearful of? Um, it, I mean, it crossed my mind, uh, but I think I hope ultimately, it's, it, you know, it's, it's telling the story of of the. Of, it, it's not untruthful. But you're trying to be as new, try, trying to strike a neutral tone. Is that what you're saying? Not really. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I do take a moral, you know, tone on on some of the things that I see. I mean, it's it's you know, it's very clear after we interview Diabolic, for instance, that you know, coming out of that interview, you know, you know, I examine how quickly the things that he says, which I find abhorrent, are kind of normalised in that conversation. So, so I do, I do take a, I do take a, a stance. It's not complete neutrality. But, you know, ultimately, it's not, I haven't gone in there and sensationalized it. I haven't gone in there and lied about anything. You know, this is, this is, this is the truth. This is the truth as I saw it. And I've done that with some, I hope, with honesty. Would you, would you be comfortable going back to all these places? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah it would okay. be. I mean, some, in some cases, I mean, it's not possible. Um Egypt, for instance, I spent a lot of time in Egypt. Uh, I mean, I, I write more in When Friday Comes about about the Egyptian ultras, especially the ultras of Cairo. But uh, the leader of the Al-Akhli ultras, um, the, the Akhlawi, which is now, I mean, now it's a terrorist, they're considered, well, not considered a terrorist organisation, but they've been outlawed. All ultras have been outlawed in mm. Egypt. Just after the Port Said. Yeah, yeah. so, um, and then, you know, there was the, uh, Mohamed Morsi, the first democratically elected president, was removed from power and Sisi is now in power. And, you know, straight away, you know, they were outlawed because they were fearful of the, Demo- the, the revolutionary power that Egyptian ultras had. Sure. And I made, I had, I had to make a decision not to go back because I was worried that, that I would endanger people by going back because it's such a poisonous environment now mm. for activists. People just go to jail. There are hundreds of ultras in jail. 
Mm. Uh, once they were the heroes of the revolution, now you know they're they're literally dying in jails. And the, the leader of the Akhlawi, a good friend of mine, uh, recently died of cancer, and and a very sad story. But um, so it, again, it's not something that you can really go back to. And there was also you know with with diabolic. I mean. <laughs> we did the interview and then three months later I got a message and he'd been shot dead in a park in, uh, in Rome, you know, he'd mm. been executed, but not nothing to do with the Elidu Chibli, but you know, he had, there's all sorts of connections to organized crime and, mm. and, uh, and that's more than likely what was the end, what, what brought the end about. Um, but although no one's really sure. And then the Elidu Chibli disbanded mm. afterwards. So although they say it's nothing to do with that, you know, it's very clear that, you know, Fabrizio was a, absolute core important glue that kept that group together so yeah there's I, I would go back I mean I'm pl- I was planning on going back to Sweden because um, uh, the start of the football season but with the coronavirus I think mm. that's not going to be possible for, for now mm. um, but yeah I think I, I would go back to most places I think um, you know and if and if and if people are unhappy, unhappy with it then I, I'm, I'm just going to have to deal with that and earlier in, in the interview, you asked, you said you asked lots of different groups of ultras to how they would describe themselves, and said a lot of people would be at pains to to try, kind of do it. You're you're clearly you know the expert in this now. So how finally, how do you describe ultra culture? I I describe. I'm not sure if this this is probably quite controversial, but I I think that it is a it's not what something is for. You can't just. I think that it's so multifaceted that I think it's what people are against and i think it's an anti it's an being an ultra is being is it is it being against authority it's an anti-authority urge that people find in football and whether that's the authority of a football club owner or the police or the security guards in front of you it's something that you 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 do not want to be controlled and you want to find a space mm. where you find some kind of freedom or or kick out against the restrictions that you see in front of yourselves and to me, that's what ultras are. But you can define them more about what they're against than what they're for. Um, but it is, it is ultimately, it is a community. And that's why, if you think about young people today and technology and the idea that everything can be done online, that young people don't like picking up the phone mm. even. Mm. Um, yet here you have, you know, a physical culture that you have to be you have to be part of mm. you have to be there you have to be in contact with people that kind of shuns that technology that shuns that modern world um you know that's a, i can i can see how that is a really seductive thing for young people to be involved in because it's, it, it's it's become rarer and rarer and rarer i mean before the internet i mean i can remember a world before the internet there was mm. all sorts of subcultural things you could be involved mm. in you know heavy metal punk like whatever like music mm. That's all kind of gone in a way because everything's accessible. Everybody can be, everybody can get that punk record now. You don't have to go to a certain shop in London to buy it. You don't have to put much effort into it. Ultras, you do. Ultras, you've got to. You've got to live it twenty four seven. You've got to, you've got to go beyond still. And so it's a culture. It's a it's a it's a culture of, of freedom and being against authority. And I think that's it's, it. Just happens to be football, and it's. Um, it's not going away anywhere anytime soon, I don't think. James, it's a fascinating story. Thank you very much for sharing it with us. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. This was a Stakhanov production. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.